Welcome back to the G3 Podcast. I'm your host, Josh Bice, and today we're going to be looking at the dangers of social justice, and specifically speaking, why the church should take this agenda seriously. Now, if you're familiar with this podcast or some of the articles that I've published, you will be very much aware of this language, but what I'm about to say, I believe to be absolutely true. Social justice is not about justice. Social justice is a social construct, if you will. It is a modification of genuine biblical justice that we find revealed to us in the pages of Holy Scripture. So social justice is about power. Social justice is about control. Social justice is about politics. And our world is consumed with social justice and identity politics and issues related to ethnic prejudice, or as the world would like to say it, racism. If you just take the newspaper clips uh, and the headlines over the recent uh, months and, and, and even back through 2020, you will note that there are specific headlines that are just continuously being released on mainline news uh, platforms where you see a constant barrage of matters of ethnic division or racism. For instance, Bloomberg Opinion, August 3rd, 2020, released an article titled, The Theological Roots of White Supremacy. July 28th, 2020, The Atlantic released an article titled, quote, White Christian America Needs a Moral Awakening. The New Yorker on September 2nd, 2020, released an article titled, quote, American Christianity's White Supremacy Problem. NBC News Opinion section titled Think, July 27th, 2020, released an article titled, Racism Among White Christians is Higher Than the Non-Religious. That's No Coincidence. NPR, July 1st, 2020, released an article titled, quote, White supremacist ideas have historical roots in U.S. Christianity. CNN, June 19th, 2020, released an article titled, quote, This is a moment of reckoning on race for white Christians. And again, just going through this last couple of weeks, if you look at Fox News on March 19th, you will see uh, an article titled, quote, DeSantis condemns critical race theory, says it won't be taught in Florida classrooms. If you look on that very same day, March 19th in the New York Times, you'll see an article titled, or a a headline titled, quote, Tales of Racism and Sexism from Three Leading Asian American Women. On that very same day, in the very same paper, March 19th, in the New York Times, there was an article titled, quote, This is Jim Crow in New Clothes, end quote. March 18th in the New York Times, there was another article titled, A Christian Vision of Social Justice. So you see this constant barrage of social justice, identity politics, critical race theory, and add to that issues related to what has previously been called global warming. And that didn't work, so they changed it to climate change. And that failed, so now they're using this language of, yes, you guessed it, climate justice. So we in the church need to approach these issues with a great deal of wisdom and clarity. 
And we need discernment, biblical discernment, to be able to see whether or not this is something that we should take seriously as a threat or whether it's something that that should just be passed off as a as a mere trend. But as we continue to to examine the nature and and the complexity of the social justice movement, it's very clear that it's bringing to the church these empty philosophies, this this worldly ideology that's seeking to deceive and to divide the church of Jesus Christ. We should be reminded of Paul's words to the church in the city of Colossae. In Colossians chapter 2, verse 8, he wrote the following, quote, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. So what we must come to terms with is that God has provided us with the true definition of justice. And yes, we as Christians must actually do justice. And within the framework that God has given us, we should operate and we should actually do justice. But we should do it the way that God himself has defined and and within the boundaries that God himself has provided for us in Scripture. The man-centered social justice agenda is, is really about money, and it's about power and control. It's not caring for oppressed people and advocating for those who have experienced injustice. That's not really what social justice is about. You might have heard that the University of Michigan has engaged in the social justice industry by devoting $8.4 million of its budget to create this new uh, specific title called diversity employees. And some of those employees are actually banking $100,000 per year to police their university on matters of diversity. And so once again, we see that this is a it's an ongoing problem. And yes, we can expect it to be a problem at the University of Michigan, and we can expect it to be a problem in politics, and we can expect it to be a, po- a problem in, in various different spheres of our culture. But when it comes to the church of Jesus Christ, we must be crystal clear that we reject these worldly ideologies because they're never intended to bring about peace and unity. They really operate like a wrecking ball to destroy and to gain power, and to gain control. And so when we look at our denominations and we look at our local churches, we must must seek to lead in such a way that we could avoid these trappings of the present-day social justicians. So today it is my joy to welcome to the podcast James Lindsay. James is a mathematician, he's a professor, he's a prolific writer and co-author of the popular book Cynical Theories, and he's the president and co-founder of New Discourses, which is complete with a website devoted to explaining and defining the ongoing fluid movement of social justice. Now, James is one of the leading voices in the social sphere, warning the world of the dangers of social justice. So, James, welcome to the G3 Podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me, Josh. I think the first time that we met was at the 2020 G3 conference in Atlanta. You were there as a guest. We had a brief conversation there in the hotel lobby. And uh, ever since then, I've been following your work. I, I was certainly following you before then as well and, and reading your work. 
very grateful for uh, the, the work that you're putting into the issues related to social justice. And so as we begin today, let's just clear the air for a moment. So you're not a Christian, right? That's correct. Yes. So you're looking at the world uh, through a different worldview than myself as a believer. And so just to be fair, you would see, as you look at the world through your uh, specific worldview, you would see humanity really at the center of your worldview. Is that correct? Um, Probably in in ethical terms, yes. Uh, So this is actually an interesting topic. If you don't mind me to get into it a little heavy, a little right out of the gate, I actually see, despite the differences between your worldview and my worldview, we have a third worldview that we're also comparing against. And I see that the the similarities between our worldview, despite their differences, are much greater than we have paid attention to over the... We've had the luxury of not having a bigger problem that's something significantly different. And so we've been able to be at each other's throats in some sense for the past couple of decades, uh, people from a secular worldview versus a religious worldview, where the truth is we actually have much more in common. We have common roots um, to our worldviews, and we have much more in common with each other than we do with something outside of that. And so when, you know, a lot of people, when I speak with the religious folks, a lot of people like to get into this, you know, placing humanity at the center. And this this becomes a complicated thing because it often in, in Christian circles, from my experience, has been characterized as a very arrogant position. But my position is, I don't think arrogant. I actually think of it, I think in, in terms of, of humility, because what I see is what's at the center of my worldview is an objective reality that humans are a part of that's much bigger than any human or any society or any country or uh, all of humanity together. The the reality itself is bigger and humans being parts of reality are subject to that. And it's not quite the same sense as being subject to a sovereign God. There's a difference in philosophy there, but that humility before something far larger than us and something that we have to have tremendous hubris to believe that we have command and control over, that we share in common. It would be, you know, it would be be rank arrogance to believe that you could challenge God, for example, from from your perspective. And it's rank arrogance from my perspective to think that we can challenge the reality that we live in. And so it's not quite the same as being subject to a, a sovereign creator, but it is still being subject to something far bigger than we are and something that we have to humble ourselves before if we want to end up having a good result in in life, in communities, in society, um, and in terms of the goals and, 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 and hopes and dreams that people have. So it's closer to, to your worldview than you may suspect. And so when you say, you know, centering humanity, that I think is an ethical claim or an ethical basis is that, yeah, the 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 trials and tribulations, the suffering and flourishing of, of human beings, and to some degree, that which goes beyond human beings in the realm of sentience becomes an extremely important arena into which we should look for our ethical grounding, from my perspective. However, it does not include this bizarre idea that we can seize the mantle of creation and take control of that. Uh, I think that, you know, human nature exists. Human nature is what it is. And it's rank folly and arrogance to try to challenge or bend or change or rebuke or reject 
what that is. Um, and if we wish to see that as because we were made by a creator who made us this way, or as some brute fact of the world that we happen to inhabit for whatever set of reasons led to that being the case, I think that's less relevant than the the, the point that trying to change it is is arrogant folly. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, I see. And I appreciate you being honest about your position. Yeah, and and when I'm saying that you see the the world through a specific worldview that places humanity at the center, I'm simply stating as an atheist that you would see that the centerpiece really of civilization and of society itself is humanity, whereas I am coming at this world through a worldview that sees God at the center of this world. And so uh, although you and I would differ on our worldview, and I would want you to be a Christian, as I stated to you at a conference in Florida, I think you're a brilliant man. I think that you have a brilliant mind. And I think even as a as a mathematician, as you look at numbers and the absolute nature of, of how those numbers function, that that is evidence that there is a divine designer, that there is evidence there that there is a God. But although you and I differ on our worldview— I would simply state that both of us are able to see a common problem today, and that common problem is the danger of social justice. Now, one of the things that I appreciate about you is that you're extremely passionate about warning people regarding these errors. In fact, I've gone on record in the past as stating that I think it's a tragedy that an atheist is more passionate about warning us about social justice than evangelical pastors and theologians seem to be. So as we begin this conversation, I want to talk to you about these issues. I want to talk to you about your book, which I think is an excellent book. I want to talk to you about the issues of this crazy world of social justice. And so as we begin, we're living in strange days when you have Harvard that would actually question the absolute nature of something as simple as 2 plus 2 equals 4. So let's just right out of the gate ask the question, does 2 plus 2 always equal 4? And how important is something as simple as a foundational math problem to our society as a whole? Uh, yes, two plus two always equals four. Um, this is in the very nature of the way that the, the the terms that we're using, and I'll use the word terms, you can say symbols if you want, but two plus four equals. Those symbols have meanings. Those symbols are defined mathematically within a certain, what's known as axiomatic system, they only have meaning within that, and in that mean in that system, they always return the result that two plus two equals four. That statement is true. It is unambiguously true. It is objectively true. You can say maybe it's different in other axiomatic systems. It turns out um, that you can create you can create uh, you can look at other axiomatic systems where it appears that these symbols. We can use the same symbols to represent actually different ideas where that is not the expression that you would write. Uh, but that's beside the point. If you, I know this isn't a math place and you're not a math person, but just for completeness, we could go into the group ZMod3, for example, and we could, or it's a ring actually, we could add together two and two uh, as, as entities within that that mathematical object, and then what we the result would actually be not equals four, but rather congruent to one. And so you can already see if we're formal about it, equals has already fallen out. Two plus two is congruent to one modulo three is a true statement in a different mathematical regime. But two and plus and 
one in this case instead of four and congruence are all different things. They have all changed their meaning. Two is a what's known as a residue class, modulo three, plus is addition within that group or ring. It's a completely different set of things. So when we actually talk about two plus two equals four without qualifying that we mean some specific different paradigm, when we actually, I shouldn't even say that. When we say two plus two equals four, we mean within the integers, at which point two plus two always equals four. So the answer is always that this is objectively true. And this is objectively true is the reason that this matters. Because if people can get you to believe that there's ambiguity on something as objectively true and simple as two plus two equals four, they can get you to believe anything. They absolutely, in fact, have power over you that you have no recourse to, to answer, except possibly by returning with your own kind of brute power, which is something we all hope to avoid at all times is to the maximum degree possible. Because if they can tell you, no, two plus two equals something different, you can't rely on the evidence of your senses. You can't rely on the experiment of taking two objects and placing them together with two more objects and counting them and seeing that there are four objects. You have no, absolutely no way to answer the challenge that they've given you or the, 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 the claim that they've made or placed upon you because they've taken away all the tools. So it's only their subjective determination now. There is no, no longer an objective source. It's only their subjective determination that makes it so that you, uh, that, that dictates how you have to act and believe. Um, and that's a very dangerous thing, both within, just since we framed it this way already, within your worldview, God is objectively true. You don't want that falling into the subjective whims of people. That's heresy. And from my worldview, the world is objectively true. Um, and I think that's true within the Christian worldview as well, as the world is objectively true as God's creation. And you don't want that being, you don't want access to that being handed over to people who can use it to manipulate you or, or use power against you or apply power or get you to believe things that simply aren't true that advantages their power. This is actually, it seems so silly, but it's such an important issue. Um, and you even did bring up the point that Harvard, the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health tweeted in support of two plus two being able to equal five uh, last year. Um, Orwell, <laughs> Orwell laughs or something. I'm not sure what he's rolling in his grave and laughing at the same time. I mean, this is it's absolutely absurd. And to, to just to make the, the the finer point here that a the largest school of public health, I think, or second largest school of public health in the United States would tweet that two plus two equals five can be true during a pandemic where there's widespread suspicion that they're overcounting already. I mean, this is just unbelievable. This is where you see that it becomes almost a, um, it's not just an application of power. There's almost an insult. Like they're flexing on you almost. Uh, it, it's really scary when people get to manipulate that. If they can manipulate two plus two equals four, think of what else they can manipulate. Absolutely. James, in your book, Cynical Theories, you wrote the following. You said, quote, it is becoming increasingly difficult to miss the influence of the social justice movement on society, most notably in the form of identity politics or political correctness. Now, end quote. So in your book, you put your finger on the issue of postmodernism as really the catalyst to the modern day social justice agenda. So as we think about that issue, the issue of social justice 
really as like a big heading or a really big category. But beneath that heading, we find all sorts of things like critical race theory, intersectionality, identity politics, white supremacy, white privilege, standpoint epistemology, everything from LGBTQA plus rights to the Equality Act, minimum wage controversy, and so much more. So as you've been engaged in what has become known as the popular grievance hoax project, tell us a little bit about your journey in social justice. Why, why is it that you would actually risk your professional career to get involved in the matters of social justice? I have a real problem with things that are not true and a real problem with things that are blatantly unfair. I understand that fairness is somewhat in the eye of the beholder. It's very difficult. This is why we have set up a legal system, for example, that tries to separate the interests uh, of the different parties from the from the law as much as possible. We try to have an impartial judge. We try to have impartial juries. We defer to the law as it's written because nobody's whims or, or whatever get to, to weigh in on that. So I don't like what's blatantly unfair and I don't like what's blatantly uh, untrue. And I see both of those in very large amounts in this movement that bills itself as seeking social justice. It's ultimately doing so through critical theory that has been equipped with postmodern logic or illogic, if you will, anti-logic really. Um, it, it treats people according to their identity groups, which is something we learned is a horrible error that we should not be doing. Um, any further than those identity groups have actual basis in reality, which you're not even allowed to say that, but to, to my knowledge, men and women are fundamentally different in important ways. And we should acknowledge that some identity groups like male and female do have a substantive difference between them, whereas other identity groups such as uh, racial categories have much less, uh, much more commonality across the races, far more than difference. There are some important medical issues within certain certain populations and groups, and that you know has to be attended to. But when you see this putting um, social significance back into racial categories for the purposes of things like discrimination and segregation and prejudice, uh, the idea of there being a white privilege is a prejudice against white people. The idea that white people have white fragility as associated with that privilege and as, as an effort to keep that privilege is, uh, is, is a prejudice. These are, these are open prejudices. The claim that all white people are complicit in white supremacy is a prejudice. Uh, when you see people putting these things back in, you can expect large amounts of unfairness and in fact, worse to follow. And so the actual incident, there was an incident that made me care enough about this issue to start taking the risk. And not a lot of people have heard this story. I've told it a few times, but it was a long time ago, I think in 2010, 12 or 13, if I had to try to guess, I was having a conversation with a group of people. The conversation was touching on the topic of affirmative action. It was with mostly blue collar people, but it was a mixed group in terms of professional status. And um, one of the blue collar guys was talking about his African-American woman boss and that she's actually incompetent. And of course, somebody accused him of saying that this was racist. And he said, it's not, she's just incompetent and is affirmative action hire. And you have this whole, you know, you've everybody, I think at this point has seen one of these conversations go off the rails. And so I tried to end up mediating in this conversation and I stepped in and I said, well, let the guy tell his story because this is a, 
this it, it, well, I just said, let the guy tell a story. Let's hear him out. We should hear people out with what they're dealing with. And the response I got from the person who we would now identify as being closer to woke, the progressive person was, he's a white man. His story has been told. And this is both false and unfair. He's now being silenced. He's being excluded from the conversation. That's unfair. And it's false. And I, I called that out. I said, no, listen. The circumstances, you're claiming that the white male story has been told, but that's a white male story of, say, that the one that you're talking about is the, the story of, say, 20 or 30 years ago. We're now in a new circumstance where we are dealing with this guy's trying to tell you what it's like dealing with affirmative action hires as a white male and what problems it creates. And he's telling you this is the experience that, that people have right now. So we're kind of dipping into this idea that they usually value called lived experience there. And the reply was, no, he's a white man. His story has been told. And that was the moment. And again, this is 2012 or 13, when I realized this is a very dangerous ideology because it's perfectly content to silence and no longer listen. Like somebody is sitting there telling, listen, there are these problems that are arising from the direction we're going. And he's not claiming to know everything about it, but he's then being silenced and accused of racism when those things are not true in any regard uh, and not being allowed to tell his story. And the only justification for it was because of his identity, his story has been told. And that's when I realized that we are on a bad road, that we are on a very bad road if this is growing in influence. And so that was the moment when I started to look into it more and started trying to understand. And that's where I encountered the idea of systemic racism and systemic sexism, as opposed to what most people thought of at the time or think of still as racism and sexism. And I started trying to figure out what these differences were. And I started looking into their literature and started to realize that what we are dealing with in this ideology is a very well developed in the academic literature, which is very scary because it's treated as knowledge. and be um, rapidly growing and much worse than even the kind of common person making that argument. Like what's in the literature is way worse than that silly little discussion uh, would, would give rise to. And I became really alarmed. So what do you do? You have to do something. When you see something of this scale and this kind of nature, you have to do something. Uh, or I have to. Maybe not everybody has that in them, but I can't abide it. So to be clear, James, what you were intending to do in that specific project was to demonstrate that there was no true uh, specific academic lens by which they were judging the specific journal pieces, and yet they were choosing those pieces based on uh, who had the most grievance to complain about in terms of social justice and oppression and that sort of thing. And so as you guys were making it up on the fly they were buying it and publishing it. And so it really revealed uh, the, the the lack of true academic nature to the journals. Right. So a lot of people don't know the ultimate motivation for why we did that. They just said that we wanted to humiliate and we've claimed that we wanted to draw attention to the problem. But a huge part of our motivation was actually, uh, especially for Helen Pluckrose and I, uh, to prove that uh, Helen was very concerned with this in particular to prove that we actually did know what we were talking about. Well, we had we had been trying to criticize it. We'd been, been pointing out these issues. We'd been saying something's wrong here. And what people repeatedly told us 
but you don't have a degree in it. You don't know it. Stay in your lane. So part of our motivation was, well, if we get a bunch of, ac- I mean, I remember us asking how many academic papers do we have to get published before you say we know what we're talking about? And we had seven. So you would think that that qualifies us, but apparently it doesn't, uh, according to our critics. But that was the one of the objectives to prove that we do what we were talking about. And since you brought the the project up, we just referred to it as the project. It's hard for me to remember to call it the grievance studies affair or whatever. What we I, I still remember we were with my friend Mike Nana. I think by Zoom, he's in Australia. We were talking about this and we were talking about a paper that we had written for for about education, about teaching people about their privilege by basically abusing them in classrooms, having them sit in the floor, wear chains as an experience of reparations, we said, experiential reparations, talking over them, not allowing them to participate in class, like all kinds of just, you know, borderline abusive behaviors as a classroom educational model. And we got this report back from the reviewers. They loved the idea. They didn't like how the paper was written at the time, but they loved the idea. And and this is a very prominent journal called Hypatia. It's the leading journal of feminist philosophy. It's not some small fry journal. And what they said was, you're actually defending what you're doing using compassion, and this re-centers the needs of the privileged. You need to lean more into what's known as a pedagogy of discomfort, education through discomfort, a theory of education based in making people uncomfortable, which we heard all through the riots. We heard Democratic politicians saying, AOC in particular, saying repeatedly, it's, you know, social change is supposed to be uncomfortable. This is the same idea. Well, we saw this in this paper, and that's when I remember talking to Mike Nana, and we we had this discussion. We just realized, oh, no, this isn't just bad. This is really bad. Like the idea that we would already be doing this horrible thing, and then we tried to qualify it back a little bit by saying, well, well let's use... Let's use a let's do it compassionately, though. Let's not ostracize anybody. And the reply from the professionals was, that's wrong. Compassion recenters the needs of the privileged. That's where you start reaching levels of scapegoating that mirror, and I don't mean to sound alarmist, but they mirror the precursors to what we saw in Germany in the 1930s. When you are willing to scapegoat people that hard, that compassion toward certain groups isn't allowed and in fact recenters their already privileged needs. That's the kind of rhetoric that you see leading to really terrible places. And that's what's motivated us. You know, you know, what got me started was this little story and I realized this is bad. That was really kind of the moment. I remember that conversation with Mike pretty clearly when we realized this is the greatest scandal that's happening, we thought within academia, um, that's been uncovered in centuries. This is unbelievably bad and dangerous territory. And our top journals uh, in certain fields have gone whole hog. And it has an outside-sized influence on you know, university architecture, what's being taught. And it's by that point even, it was 2000, early 2018, it had already leaked thoroughly into culture um, and the way that people were behaving around one another. We, had, we hadn't seen anything yet. Um, the Cultural Revolution hadn't started yet, but it was getting there. And it, the logic was plain. This is abusive logic. This is scapegoating of an entire racial category um, that's very dangerous. Yeah, very good point. You use the language of cultural revolution. So I want to segue into talking about the issues of social justice in the church. So I've personally engaged in this controversy within evangelicalism, and it's 
It's an extremely burdensome thing for myself uh, as I look at the church, as I see the church being attacked uh, by these ideologies. And so back in uh, 2019, the Southern Baptist Convention adopted a resolution. Resolution 9 is what it's called, On Critical Race Theory and Intersectionality. Now, I want to read to you just a portion of that, and then I want to have you sort of comment on the language that you hear from, from your own worldview and your own studies in social justice. Uh, at one point in the resolution, it states, whereas critical race theory and intersectionality alone are insufficient to diagnose and redress the root cause or causes of the social ills that they identify, which result from sin, yet these analytical tools can aid in evaluating a variety of human experiences, end quote. Now, for me, that was a bombshell, the largest Protestant denomination adopting a resolution to use such worldly and, and divisive ideologies as analytical tools for ministry. So talk to us a little bit about what you hear in that resolution, and also give us just really a, a simple layman's understanding of what critical race theory actually is. Okay. So, I mean, obviously most of your audience will know I've been famous for having called that a Trojan horse, uh, that particular sentence. And it is, uh, I haven't heard it in a while. So it's, it's good to hear it again. I hear it with, with fresh ears, you know, and before I had focused as, as you have on this, you know, analytical tool being brought in, uh, to, to analyze churches and analyze even probably, uh, you know, the way that, that the word will be preached and taught, thought about, discussed. Um, I've thought about it, you know, previously in terms of that, but actually the first part caught me more this time. The part where it says specifically that, you know, where it says something, I may not get it exactly right, but I'll try from memory, you know, whereas critical race theory and intersectionality are insufficient uh, tools to, 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 I forgot what the exact wording is, to deal with the, the problems that the, it identifies. This is this is already a lie. This is deception. This is, <laughs> I mean, in, in in the language that that resonates with with your worldview. This is this is where where Lucifer is pulling pulling a deception, because critical race theory and intersectionality do not identify any real problem. They have ginned up a problem. They have invented a problem called systemic racism, or maybe it's more accurate to kind of follow from Thomas Sowell and say that they have resurrected or put it on, kept it on life support so that they can use it. Certainly I would not be so foolish or arrogant or, or naive as to say that there has never been systemic racism in the United States. Certainly there was, certainly there was absolutely unquestionably before the civil rights acts were passed before uh, the, the, before the 1865 with, with the 13th, 14th, 15th amendments, certainly there were both institutional and systemic racism in this country. This is undeniable. Uh, certainly even following the passage of the civil rights act, you know, many attitudes and mindsets still retained, uh, some, some of the force that had been legally and institutionally stripped. Uh, and so it took time for that to diminish, but it was, it was a very rapidly diminishing problem following the passage of the passage of these laws that struck institutional racism down in the United States and legally empowered people to fight it anywhere that it came. Uh, you know, if you were legally discriminated, if you were, if you were racially discriminated against in the workplace or wherever else you could challenge it legally and usually you could win. Uh, so systemic racism fell apart 
at that point. So what's happened is critical race theory and intersectionality have created or recreated a problem. It diagnoses a disease that we that, that doesn't exist in any meaningful sense any longer. And when you read what systemic actually means to them, it actually means the operation of how everything works. It is the fundamental roots of our society. It is incorrect and has always been incorrect to say that the fundamental roots of our society, say in the United States, are systemically racist because the fundamental statement of the United States is that all men are created equal, which is an ideal that we meant to live up to. People like Frederick Douglass called us to live up to in 1852, preceding the Civil War. People like Martin Luther King appealed to us to live up to again in 1963 and thereabouts. He didn't just speak once. Uh, to, but I think 63 is when he, I may have that wrong, but he was where he made his famous promissory note remark that the, there was a promissory note that, that the Constitution had given a promissory note that the United States had not fulfilled to African American citizens. And um, it has therefore created a problem or resurrected a problem out of the past. It does not identify a problem that is meaningful in the present. And it uses an analytical tool called critical theory to find that problem in places where it doesn't exist. And I can tell you why, because you've asked me to explain what critical race theory and intersectionality, and I can be a little more generous to intersectionality, but then I can actually have to take that generosity away when we get deeper into it. But with critical race theory, Critical race theory begins from the assumption, in its own words, that racism is the ordinary state of affairs, the so-called normal science, not an aberration from the state of normal state of affairs in a society, an institution, or any interpersonal interaction. So racism is present. Racism is there. It believes that racism is the fundamental organizing principle of everything. So it makes it not possible to be not racist. You're either a critical race theorist, they say you're either racist or anti-racist, but what they mean is you're either a critical race theorist or we get to call you racist. And they can find racism in literally anything. Uh, it's just a matter of being able to apply that creativity to be able to name how racism somewhere, the roots of something have racism. And, you know, the Southern Baptist Convention was complicit in racism in, in 1940 or maybe even 1970. And therefore it's racist to this day. That's the kind of mentality that they have. The, the idea that progress is possible is not there because it believes that racism is the ordinary state of affairs. And in fact, that rather than there being genuine progress that diminishes racism, the fundamental operating system of critical race theory believes that racism doesn't go away. It hides itself because racism is endemic to the system. So unless the system itself has fundamentally changed, has been completely remade, which in practice means you have now given over power to new people with new ideas and completely obliterated the past. That's where I mentioned cultural revolution, destroy the four olds, the way old ways of thinking, the old habits, the old customs, the old culture. Uh, that was Mao's agenda there. Until that has occurred, the system itself remains racist. And anything that looks like it's not racist is actually racism hiding itself more successfully. This is the mentality, the paranoid and cynical mentality of critical race theory. We could talk in as much detail as you want. I could quote things from, from a, a book, Critical Race Theory and Introduction by Richard Delgado and Gene Stefanczyk. Richard Delgado is one of the original kind of big players in critical race theory. He's not a fringe character. Standard textbook, page three, the first paragraph says that uh, unlike traditional approaches to civil rights, which value incremental progress and step-by-step -step progress, critical race theory questions the very foundations of the liberal order, including equality theory, legal reasoning, enlightenment rationalism, and the neutral principles of constitutional law. On page 23, this same book says 
critical race theorists, it says crits actually, but critical race theorists are skeptical of another, uh, very skeptical, I should say, of another, or suspicious, very suspicious of another liberal mainstay, namely rights. They are anti-rights. <laughs> they actually question the idea that human beings have rights. And of course, within the United States, if you read the Declaration of Independence, and within Christianity, and certainly within my worldview as well, despite it not being Christian, I believe that rights are something that human beings have as by virtue of being human. It precedes the state. It is not something that humans have the right to question as to whether or not human beings have fundamental rights. And critical race theory doesn't care about that. So you could say that this is, you know, from my worldview, it's a rejection of the United States and its premises within the Christian worldview. It's challenging God to have made individuals sovereign uh, over themselves. And, you know, each unique uh, individuals within his creation. So that's what critical race theory ultimately is. It is a collectivist ideology that tries to use race as the wedge tool to agitate and keep people divided and looking for race by having them look for racism that's assumed to always be present and then to polarize around that. Uh, intersectionality, just to touch on it briefly, is a concept that arose in 1989. Um, Kimberly Crenshaw, one of the two creators of critical race theory, uh, along with her mentor, Derek Bell. But Kimberly Crenshaw came up with the idea of intersectionality. I would actually say the original observation of intersectionality, which is not how it's put into practice, is a valid observation that merits discussion, especially within law, which is where she put it out. That observation was that you could get a, you could discriminate, for example, against black women who hold two categories of protected identity. Um, by you could you could discriminate against them by sufficient by having a sufficient number of white women and black men because there was no uh, specific way to get around to, to to identify such a discrimination. If you have a company that discriminated wholly against black women, it's possible they could say, "Well, we don't discriminate by race. Look how many black people we have, but they're all men. And look how many we don't discriminate by sex. Look how many women, but they're all white women. We happen to have." And so you could actually get away with discrimination against somebody specific. And if it had stopped there as an observation that we need to figure out because it's dangerous to just say, oh, well, let's just consider every single possible identity that you could you could occupy as a legally protected category, that's dangerous too. But to, to bring that up as something that the law really did need to think about was a valuable contribution in my opinion, but that was never Kimberly Crenshaw's intention. Kimberly Crenshaw had a completely different intention with intersectionality, which was to create uh, a movement of solidarity around all axes of systemic oppression as understood by neo-Marxist ideology. And then in her own words, to fuse that to postmodern theory. The statement in her second paper, 1991, on the topic, which is called Mapping the Margins, is um, that she regards intersectionality as a provisional concept linking contemporary, meaning identity politics, with postmodern theory. So she had a completely different agenda. I consider that sentence, in fact, to be the birth of the so-called woke ideology that we're dealing with today. Uh, it wasn't merely to point out that there is a potential loophole in discrimination law that lawyers should be wrestling with and legal theorists should be wrestling with. It was, in fact, to create a new way entirely to think about identity in which um, one's social position as determined by various identity categories that you are said to occupy become one of the most relevant factors of your person in politics. And that's explicit in the end of the paper. She, she says we should recognize I am black over I am a person who happens to be black because 
I'm a person who happens to be black, forwards the idea of universal humanity first and would not be productive for a politics of identity. Um, so this is clearly, again, division, 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 but in the name of this weird solidarity uh, that we now see as meant to just kind of kick up the ante, not to black people or black women or queer black feminists, as it turns out, but queer, queer black feminists is correct, not queer black women, um, which is where all of this came from, by the way, was the Combahee River Collective was the one who forged the ideas under that. And they were black women who were lesbians, socialists who believed in the ideology called black feminism. So it's not just that. It is actually the people who have those politics that are the beneficiaries of this way of thinking. The anti, if you will, if you want to put it kind of in mobster racketeering language, the anti always gets kicked up to people who hold the correct identity politics with, you know, kind of an extra layer of grace if you happen to possess certain identity categories yourself. Yeah, that's very helpful. So as we think about these these two uh, ideologies, critical race theory and intersectionality, really they're like wrecking balls rather than tools that produce unity, correct? That's right. Like, let me give you an example where just right out of the language of Resolution 9, he's talking about whoever wrote it. I shouldn't say he because I don't actually know who wrote it. They, I think, is the best pronoun to use there. Um, they're talking about this idea that that the intersectionality bears fruitfully upon the problems that it identifies. Well, what intersectionality brings into the picture, that the name of the intersectional game is engaging social position. So your social position, which is determined by your conglomeration of identity, identity political relevant categories, that's all they care about, is which categories are useful to identity politics? Where can you choose some line in, in society upon which you can claim that there's an oppressor versus oppressed dynamic, whether that's white versus black, male versus female, straight versus gay. Uh, I hate to even use the made up word cisgender versus trans. Um, where is there a line that you can draw where across that there is a, some alleged power dynamic? Um, and then what it says is that that defines for you, intersectionality says you are defined by the unique social position that is the intersection of all of those different identity categories, whether, you know, you happen to be, you could be, say, a black man, and then you occupy a oppressed black category versus a privileged uh, male category. And so what intersectionality says is we're going to talk about this. We're going to think about this constantly. We're going to bring this up to the front of every discussion and every piece of analysis, every conversation. So what you'll hear people say and I know this has come up within major players in the convention, um, is, you know, as a black man, for example, I have to acknowledge that, you know, I have privilege as a male, so I have to listen to my my sisters, but I also can acknowledge that I occupy a position of special knowledge, <laughs> if you will, Gnosticism, in that I am black and therefore understand the, the, the lived experience of being black in a white dominant society. In other words, in a society that has accepted the belief that there's a systemic power dynamic between white and black, rather than being able to see each person as an individual who may or may not have ever experienced that in any positive or negative way, depending on who they are and where they are. So it's going to bring that up every time. So what are you going to end up with? Division. People squabbling over who has a number of things. People squabbling over who has the correct perspective to be able to essentially claim the power in that discussion. 
Because if you have the correct oppressed, this concept is called radical egalitarianism uh, in the literature. But if you have the correct uh, oppression claim, then you now occupy a social position where you can claim to understand something that other people cannot or do not understand. So therefore, you gain power in that discussion. You can't be questioned. You have to be listened to. Other people can't challenge you. Their story, other people's story has been told and therefore bears not at all against even evidence bears not at all against whatever testimony comes from this claim of lived experience uh even if that claim is inaccurate even if that claim is made up in some cases and i'm not accusing anybody in the church of doing that but we all saw the the case with that uh actor a couple of years ago jesse smollett or whatever his name is where he just made it up and it wasn't to be questioned this is a very dangerous thing. So you have people squabbling over the ability to gain that access to power because people are corruptible. People are, you might say, fallen. <laughs> and they will be corrupted by the temptation to power, even if they don't mean to be, even if they think they're just doing the right thing. That temptation is very seductive. It's very powerful. A second thing is that people will start to think in that term, in those terms. People will start to think of themselves not as a single unified body in a church, not as a community that is, you know, sharing goals and sharing vision, but rather as identity groups within as small coalitions, small factions set against one another within that broader community or church. There is absolutely nothing positive in terms of community building that comes out of a positional line of thinking, which, you know, I hear many people in the Southern Baptist Convention refer to standpoint epistemology. Standpoint epistemology changed with intersectionality to become engaging positionality so they can sidestep the claim that that's what they're doing. But it is ultimately the claim that, you know, you're going to hole up into your various factions, claim that all the other factions don't understand you, can't communicate with you, don't have anything deeply in common with you, and are antagonistic if you're in one of the oppressed positions toward you. It's going to factionalize and balkanize you that way. And then how is that going to possibly generate a unified community, a unified church, a unified uh, convention? It, it cannot. It's the opposite of what it bills itself to be. Yeah. Well, you know, w within the evangelical circles, you hear people saying things like, well, you know, uh, we need to be better listeners and we need to be sympathetic to the people who have experienced a different world than we have. So I'm very nervous when I see evangelical leaders writing books like Eric Mason, his book titled Woke Church, and having this idea that the church needs to be awakened <laughs> to the systemic injustices of this world, and then they use that as an ongoing tool to gain power. I don't want to step on your toes. I say this a lot when I speak with Christians. You guys have this over me, but if I'm not mistaken, this whole idea of the systemic injustices and sympathy, if I'm not mistaken, Christianity is already an entire, entire belief system built around the idea of a single global universal systemic, <laughs> systemic system of sin. Like, it's already just one thing. This idea of, fra of, of fracturing it and to, to manipulate people into to believing that it needs to be fractured uh, seems to miss the entire—I'm I'm no authority on the gospel, but it seems to miss the entire message of the gospel. To fracture that, that one system of, of, of I don't know, power or evil or whatever we want to call it, injustice in the world— it's all from one place, according to the gospel, to the, the degree that I understand it, which is that it's from sin. It is, 
it should th- why why are we going to break this apart? And I mean, this again, I I hate to use the imagery, but is that not what a deceiver would attempt to do? Is to try to take the eyes, take people's eyes off of the universal problem and put it somewhere else where they can't solve that or deal with that universal problem. Be- I know you can't solve sin. I don't mean to say that, but um, you can't deal with or face the universal problem because you're stuck dealing with your own kind of self-interested problem instead. That's the deception. And I think that's really important for people to understand. Like this is like Christianity already has a toolkit designed for dealing with the failures and depravities of, of humanity. It, that's what it's built around. That's what the whole concept of the faith is about. That's why it builds good people. Very, uh, I mean, granted, there are some that go wrong, but it's why it tends to build good people uh, and why it's been such a successful system of faith for so many people for so long. Uh, it, it's just preposterous to think that now you're going to step in and improve it by fracturing it and taking its focus off of the thing that it's supposed to be focused on. You're right on point on on many levels there, because that's exactly what these ideologies are doing within the church. That's how they are being employed within evangelicalism, is it's causing massive division rather than unity. And so the, the controversy for us would be that we believe that the Bible is absolutely sufficient to deal with these matters and that, you know, any other way of looking at these issues is not really going to bring about the solution that we aim for. And so it doesn't matter if you write books titled Woke Church or whatever you want to say, it's not going to, in the end, uh, bring the outcome that we claim that it would or that those people would claim that it would, you know, bring ultimately. So um, I want to play this clip. And this is Danny Aiken, who is actually the president of Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. But I want to I want to play this clip. It's a short clip, but I want to hear your comments on it as he speaks about the issues of power. So listen to this clip and then we'll come back on the other side. White Christians uh, need to learn above all things, I think, to be good listeners. Uh, Over the last several years, as I've tried to help build a culture for racial reconciliation and kingdom diversity, uh, which is a core value of Southeastern Seminary, uh, I've come to understand more and more that my perspective is not the perspective of um, my African-American brothers and sisters or my Hispanic brothers and sisters, my Asian brothers and sisters. Uh, They really do see uh, life differently. Uh, They're operating out of a different uh, paradigm, a different context uh, that's very different than mine. And I didn't really realize that until I stopped talking uh, and began to listen. So I think one of the things that white evangelicals in particular have got to do is become better listeners. Uh, In addition to that, we've got to be willing to surrender power, uh, which is again, uh, not uh, indigenous to our nature. Uh, As I often say, not only do we need to invite ethnic minorities uh, uh, into our uh, room and uh, to have a seat at the table, Uh, We even need to be willing to surrender leadership at the table if we're really going to make progress and really uh, help uh, our brothers and sisters understand we see them on an equal plane with ourselves. All right. So, James, you're not a Christian. You're not a member of the Southern Baptist Convention. But as you hear that language, what strikes you as problematic right out of the chute? Power. He's focused on power. Um, He's not focused on almost anything except power, you know, and and then the the racism, you know, he says repeatedly, he says something true, and I'll say it slightly differently than he did. Evangelicals need to listen to one another. 
but he said white evangelicals need to listen, right? That's, that's the same thing we were talking about before. It's the same story that got me involved in this whole project, you know, seven, eight years ago. He believes that somebody's story has been told and that it's only those people's job to listen. It's not people listen. He wants to, he wants to have racial reconciliation, which my friends, uh, Daryl Bernard Harrison and Virgil Walker have taken apart. So I think it was at actually the G3 conference we were at together that they did such a wonderful job taking that apart that, that it's not races don't reconcile because they're groups, the individuals, individual hearts reconcile one to another. And how do they accomplish that? By listening. Therefore, evangelicals or Christians or people should be listening more. I fully agree with that message. However, saying that there's a greater onus on any particular group to do that when the goal is to understand one another and build a community together is racism. So I hear that. And then what's it in service to? Well, to his idea of power, right? His his idea of, he says, you know, that he says that white evangelicals are loath to give up power. I don't know that that's actually true. Um, maybe some of them, but I don't know that this qualifier of white, again, that's racism, is what's relevant here. Uh, usually, and the general truth is that people who have power, whoever they are, tend to like to keep it unless they are very humble, unless they very thoroughly understand that to have power is to serve rather than to command and control. Uh, but this whole thing is is based all in this idea that power has to be redistributed. I'm sure it hasn't begun with him. I don't know. Uh, I don't keep up with with um, Southern Baptist politics, but I would I would reckon that he hasn't listened to his own advice on that. If I had to place bets, um, because very frequently, you know, I call this on Twitter. I call it the Iron Law of woke projection. Um, people are projecting. He says, you know, white evangelicals don't want to listen. Maybe he doesn't want to listen. White evangelicals, which he's you know projecting his own experience onto an entire racial group, which seems not good. Uh, and then they're they're loath to give up power. Well, where's the fruit? Did he give up power? Do you? I mean, you would know. I don't know. Did he give up power? No, that's correct. Danny Aiken is still presently serving as the president of Southeastern Seminary. No, he did. No, of course not. Of course not. You know, I'm not a big fan of Nietzsche, and and I'm sure as a Christian you have some issues with Nietzsche, but Nietzsche did say that very often the philosophers, that philosophy is not actually pursuit of truth. It's a ration, it's a way for very smart people to rationalize their own pathologies, to, to talk their way, to use words to talk their way out of. This is, of course, one of the biggest warnings that Christians often have about secular philosophy anyway, to talk their way out of their own problems, to justify their own problems to themselves. So I don't want to pick on, on Mr. Aiken, but I hear this language very frequently. Like, oh, well, we need to start redistributing power because, and again, another racist assumption, my you know African-American brothers, he says, have a different perspective. My Hispanic brothers have a different perspective. Really? Which ones? Have you, do you, did you take five seconds, Mr. Aiken, to pay attention that each black person is an individual, that each Hispanic person is an individual, that each Asian person is an individual, and that if you even look for five seconds at the, I mean, seriously, five seconds, you find out that they disagree with each other on lots of things, that they have these crazy things like their own perspectives. So I get really annoyed with this idea that there's such a thing as a racial culture or such a thing that there's a, a, a racial um, perspective. No, there are individuals who happen to to occupy these racial categories or these identity categories. And there are sometimes commonalities that 
statistically, you know, on average apply to many people, but they don't, they cannot possibly characterize something as big and diffuse as an entire population of people. Um, so what that does is if he's going to say, oh, well, we need to listen to our African-American brothers. You'll just pick one, right? We need to listen to them and we need to listen to their perspective. Now, all of a sudden it's who, who are we picking? You know, are we listening to Daryl Bernard Harrison? Are we listening to Virgil Walker? Are we listening to Vody Bauckham? Who are we listening to? Who exactly do you mean? Or are we listening to Jamar Tisby? Why is his perspective more superior? Is it because Ibram Kendi just anointed him? Is that why we have to listen to him? Ibram Kendi gave him, I just saw that on Twitter this morning. Ibram Kendi, you know, comes out and says, oh, you know, Jamar Tisby has basically got got the view of anti-racism. So is, which one, you know, this is why thinking of people in terms of their identity group is poison. Those two, just pick two, Vodi and, and Jamar. I'm sure that they disagree on many things. Which one is the black voice? right? It's not a good way. I'm not saying one way or the other. I'm not saying, oh no, you know, this one is and that one's not. That's the same poisoned way of thinking. They are individuals. They are individuals. Stop putting them in boxes and saying how they have to act and how they have to think. White evangelicals have to do this. White evangelicals have to do that. Shut up. No. Individuals have to reckon with what's going on with themselves. And then from a Christian perspective, they need to pray about it. They need to reflect about it. They need to decide what's right within themselves as individuals and see other people as individuals. And then that's where you're going to find reconciliation and stuff. This is just a totally backwards way to approach the problem when I hear him say things like that. And then, of course, uh, I, I hate to just put it rankly, but the hypocrisy. If you're going to say that people in leadership need to give up their positions, lead by example. Get out. Yeah. So... Moving beyond the race and ethnic prejudice issue, as we come to a close in this conversation, you've spent countless hours studying the evils of social justice. So I want you to give the final word, if you will, regarding the need for the evangelical church to fight against social justice. But is there something specific that the church is missing? Or perhaps is there something that you see coming down the road in the days to come that we should be very much aware of? Well, I can tell you what you need to be aware of is that because this ideology, and I hate to just be this blunt because it's awkward and it usually requires unpacking, but this ideology is rooted in neo-Marxism and communism. It therefore is not particularly attached to anything in a principled fashion. It's attached to what works. So if you start to stand up to critical race theory, for example, or intersectionality, and you challenge them, you should expect the same kinds of divisive techniques to be branded in a new way. Race may still be very central to this. It may still be, you know, they may call it something like, I think I'd heard the term soft intersectionality at some point was being floated around. Uh, the attempt, you see this, by the way, in, this, in the school systems, especially in Florida. I remember that DeSantis just recently, not to make it political, but DeSantis said, we're not going to do critical race theory in Florida schools. And Twitter gets flooded with teachers in Florida who are like, haha, we'll just do it subversively. This will happen in the church, too. They literally, and I, that was a quote, we will just do it subversively. We just won't call it that. They'll never know. The Twitter was flooded with actual educators saying, you ban it, we're going to do it anyway. So you have to be aware that this is not going to be the kind of thing that's, oh, you defeated it by this name and it's very principled and therefore it went away. You actually are going to have to maintain your vigilance and understand what it is in order to fight the problem. As far as social justice goes, social justice is an, just as a term, not inherently a bad thing. Different approaches to social justice 
are a bad thing. And we have to be very wary because that term has been co-opted more or less completely. A Christian approach to genuinely making fairer and, uh, you know, even better listening and more open uh, churches and everything else to make things, you know, any to find whatever discrimination or prejudice there is and, and minimize or get rid of that. That's noble and that's great. You know, and it should be done biblically if it's in a Christian context. If it's done in a secular context, it should be done in a position that adopts something like universal humanity and individualism. You know, so there are different approaches to trying to make a more fair and just society and a more fair and just institution or church or community or everything. And that is worth doing. But this particular approach is rightly named critical social justice. It depends on a in the very academic terms, a mindset called critical constructivism, which is a fusion of critical theory and postmodernism. That's the social constructivism uh, is the constructivist part using critical theory methods. And that has to be rejected entirely. That is terrible for society. It's terrible for a church. It's abiblical. It's un-American. It's all of those things. So th- my last word on social justice would be that. As for blind spots that the church has, I will get a little blunt with you. The problem that I see that the church faces is uh, that the um, the issue around women and gays is the most challenging spot because it's very difficult for you to stand in your, as somebody outside of the church, I can say this, to stand in the biblical ground as you see the biblical ground. And to accept that that's what it is and not be accused, and I think it's often credible to many people in the in the world today, not to say that it's correct, but to be accused of being uh, unjustly chauvinistic or uh, homophobic or patriarchal or something like this. So there's an opening there that, that I think more time and more thought and more nuance has to go into. You can't compromise on your biblical principles. I completely understand that. Um, what I would advise if I were to be so bold is that um, churches need a little more courage to stand up and say that they invite people to leave the church. If you think that it's that we're going to stand in our biblical principles, we're going to stay with our principles, and if you don't like that, we respect you, we honor your analysis, and we wish you luck, uh, rather than compromising on your own position. So recently, I know that Beth Moore apparently left, and my reaction was, bye, <laughs> good, good. Good for her, not even just good. It's good for the organization not to have this agent of division uh, operating the way that has been going on. It's been very divisive and very argumentative, but it's good for her. She can now attempt to make sense of what she understands to be the word or the truth or the best way to approach this on terms that aren't constrained by some other organization that she doesn't want to be constrained by. So fine. And I understand that that's not great for convention politics. I understand that that's not great for, you know, other things. But at the end of the day, um, one of the manipulations that this ideology, that this movement is is very effective at using is they they like to kind of throw this, this threat, this fit, this threat, like, well, if you don't give me my way, I'll leave. And so they're asking you to compromise your principles to keep them around. And my advice would be, don't compromise your principles. We've compromised our principles for far too long in this society now, and we see where it's got us. Uh, speaking as someone who has kind of always identified as both liberal and certainly not as Christian, and I don't know how you can possibly compromise on religious principles. Uh, a church that's changing is not really a church, right? Um, so my, that that those two issues, though, you have to find 
whether it's strength of conviction or the correct, you have to look at these two issues very closely because they are, in a sense, a crack that's letting in uh, a bigger argument than uh, needs to be let in. And uh, I would encourage people to think very carefully about that who are leaders in, in the church. Yeah, very good, very good. I see the issue of the sufficiency of Scripture as being the issue under attack. And so, uh, you know, from a local level, you know, just just talking about church politics, from a local level, you know, we would practice what Matthew chapter 18 teaches on matters of sin. So if you have people coming into the church trying to bring these worldly ideologies of division and and deconstruction into the local church, well, then we have a means by which we can address that and we can certainly practice church discipline and excommunicate someone from the fellowship. But from a, you know, a, a convention sort of mindset, it becomes much more difficult and complex when you have a big tent operation with thousands and thousands of churches. It just becomes more and more difficult. And then, of course, you have the politics that enter into the, you know, the whole equation at that point. So, uh, but yeah, what you stated is absolutely true. We need to stand firm. We need to have that conviction. And yet at the same time, uh, show people that there is hope in the gospel through the Christian worldview that these other worldly ideologies simply don't have. And so that would be what would differentiate us from, say, an empty, worldly approach to the approach that we have through the gospel of Jesus Christ. So I do pray that God will bless this conversation. I pray that God would give us clarity and wisdom to see the world through the proper lens and to be able to address the social ills of the day through the proper means within the church of Jesus Christ, which is through the sufficient word of God. And so I'm grateful for you and how you bring much clarity and light to this conversation. Thanks for joining us. Thanks, Josh. I appreciate it. Well, thank you for joining us for this edition of the G3 Podcast. We want to point you to our website. That's g3men.org. There you will be able to find archives of this very podcast, as well as other important resources and articles that are published on a weekly basis. You will also find information related to our upcoming G3 National Conference that's going to be held September the 30th through October the 2nd in Atlanta. This year's theme is Biblical Christology, and you'll want to join us for this exciting conference. You'll be able to find out information about the speakers as well as hotel properties on our website. We look forward to seeing you with us this coming fall for the conference, but also as you make plans, you'll want to make sure that you arrive on Tuesday if possible. That way you can take part in the pre-conference on September 29th and you'll want to find out more details about that. We're going to be releasing that information very soon. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter and Facebook. You'll see those announcements as they are released over the next few days. May God bless you. Have a wonderful week and we'll see you next week on the G3 Podcast.